Hey lady, it's Dr. Dom here. If you like this show and you want to make your own, let me tell you about the free platform Anchor. It's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. You can add songs from Spotify and create any type of content that you are looking for. Anchor will distribute it all for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. On this week's episode in her space. Um, so my biggest fiber was pretty huge and I called her Felicia just because I could always feel her. Like right before my surgery, I had a bye Felicia party. Like where I, I had my friends say. <laughs> Yeah, like I feel like, you know, one of my friends said you have to celebrate every moment in your life. Like Welcome to Her Space, a podcast dedicated to uplifting women like you. We're, We're your, your hosts, hosts, Dr. Dominique Broussard, a college professor and psychologist, and Terry Lomax, a techie and motivational speaker. In a world where Black women are often misrepresented and misunderstood, please join us as we initiate authentic conversations on everything from fibroids to fake friends and create a safe space where Black women can just be. Okay, ladies, so today you are in for a special treat. If you have been following us for a moment, then you know that one of our topic that we mentioned is fibroids. So today we are going to be diving into not just fibroids, but overall gynecological health. And we have a guest speaker. Dr. Joy Cooper is a Philadelphia native and an obstetrician gynecologist at Highland Hospital in Oakland, California. She completed residency at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. She earned her MD from Howard University, completed a master's in sexually transmitted infections and HIV at University College of London, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and earned an AB in African and African American Studies at Harvard College. When she is not on call catching babies or traveling the globe, she is fulfilling her mission to impact women of the African diaspora through her organization, Daughters of the Diaspora Incorporated, and a new startup called Culture Care. Welcome, Dr. Joy. Thank you. I mean, that that introduction was just, I mean, wow, your your background, you you are ready for this. Like you are in this. You are clearly passionate about this. I think the key thing is I'm from Philly. And I think that <laughs> colored my whole experience, basically. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. Philly native on the line, Dr. Joy. I'm from Southwest Philly. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm from uptown, but I lived in Southwest while I was in residency. I live with my grandma. So okay. I'm like, I got the Southwest flavor, seriously. Hey, I love it. I love it. Is it anywhere near Penrose? Just curious. Um, Penrose, no, yeah, kind of close. I was at 73rd and Elmwood. So oh, not too far yeah. from Girl. Oh, my goodness. Okay, we'll have a Philly talk after the, after yes. the episode. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're going to dive into our quote of the day. It's by Bell Hooks, where she says, I think the number one thing Black women and all Black people should be paying attention to is our health. And so that is our focus for today is, and this quote actually came from a larger piece where Bell Hooks was speaking about Black women and our reproductive health. One of the biggest issues in Black women's reproductive health, at least from what I've seen, 
is fibroids. I have my own personal experience with fibroids, but Dr. Joy, can you talk to us a little bit about what are fibroids and what are some of the signs and symptoms that are particularly prevalent with African-American women? I just have to say the fact that you started with a bell hook um, coat that said that like it's just so impactful because so many times in my like career or in my road to medicine, I've been like, oh, I should have just been an African-American studies like professor. I always think that. But mm-hmm. hearing bell hooks validate my career feels so good. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so fibroids are basically, I describe them as like little balls of muscle that are just like really disorganized. So the whole uterus, um, the main part of the uterus is a muscle. So the inner part of the, of the uterus is a muscle. And so essentially they're like these little muscle balls that form that uh, we don't know what causes them. They come from nowhere. We know they are fed by hormones in our body, mostly estrogen, but they form and they can grow big. Now, the hard part with African-American women or black women, really, I should say the African diaspora because I've encountered fibroids both on the continent and here, um, is that basically ours tend to be larger. We tend to be more symptomatic. We tend to need surgery more. We tend to have a rebound of symptoms in fibroids after surgery pretty quickly. So fibroids is a really big cost to our community because if you imagine the amount of fertility impact, um, obstetrical impact, because fibroids can impact pregnancies and your wellness and you're just feeling well during pregnancy, um, and sometimes even need for C-sections and such, it definitely has a lot of weight in our community because we, we get them worse. And so I think the hard part and what... I've been trying to do is really like develop more data specifically for women of color about fibroids in our community. Because if you read a general pamphlet, it'll seem like, oh, fibroids, no big deal. Um, But for us, we tend to have more symptoms. So we tend to have heavier bleeding, which is one of the mainstays of fibroids. Sometimes if they are really big, you'll start feeling bloated or feel like you're kind of pregnant. And it's like, "Hmm, why do I my pants not fitting so well? Um, You might have pain. Some women do have pain associated with it, as well as um, pressure, like going to the bathroom, really um, like not making it to the bathroom, having to go more often um, just because sometimes the uterus is right in front of the bladder. So you kind of like turn into like a pregnant woman where you're going to the bathroom all the time. So some of those, those are some of the main signs and symptoms that most women come in complaining of. And Dr. Joy, if a woman, let's say she goes to the doctor, she's having these symptoms and she finds out wow, I have fibroids. What's a typical next step for a woman in that journey? I know Dom's going to share a bit about her story as well, but what is like the first thing one can do? I I haven't experienced it, but I can only imagine that someone might feel lonely or feel as though they don't know where to go if they're just getting this new um, diagnosis. I think the first thing to do is to look inward and ask, what are my goals? What do I want to do? Um, I really talked a lot, like I've discovered as an OBGYN, so I guess the last two years I've been my, like a full attending, not just in training. And my whole point of view is that gynecology and obstetrics is really about quality of life. A lot of it will not kill you. Most of it is about how can you live your best life. And so if the fibroids are affecting your quality of life, your ability to, you know, wear white <laughs> all the time, your ability <laughs> just to like button up your pants and, you know, like not have to like, you know, hide your belly and, you know, all these different things and, you know, wear different awkwardly fitting clothes, you know, that's the main thing you want to ask yourself. And I have my own like, you know, fibroid story. I basically was diagnosed about 2014 and really didn't need surgery probably until about 2016 because I didn't have symptoms. And my fibroids are pretty large even when I found it, but I didn't have symptoms. And I think the main thing is if you are having symptoms or not. So if you're not having symptoms, 
really there's not that much to do unless you're looking to get pregnant in the next like six months to a year because then that kind of colors your experience. Um, but that's why you have to look inward first and say, am I having symptoms? What do I want to do about my fertility? And am I living my best life, basically? And so let's say that you do decide that you your quality of life is being impacted. Like for me personally, what initially prompted me to make like changes was my quality of life was being impacted. Um, my gynecologist at the time pointed out that my belly was protruding in a way that resembled a woman who was three or four months pregnant. And like you mentioned, like your pants not fitting well and and having to go to the bathroom all the time, like those things. And one of the things is for some women, sex can be impacted. And so for me, it was a decision of, okay, I don't necessarily want surgery right away. And so then I started doing all this research and I was like, all right, I'm diving in and figuring out like, what can I do? And there was all these things out there about diet change and no soy and being pescatarian. And I, I tried all of that and cut sugar. And so what do you, what is your medical take on making those diet changes before going into the route of surgery. I think the key thing is that I don't think there's any diet change that's going to shrink your fibroids. There's nothing you can do to like, once they are where they are and they're causing the problems, their problem, you know, like there's really nothing you can do to kind of reverse that. That's just my personal opinion. I know there are people out there who will on their Facebook account say, oh, it was there. Then it wasn't there. All these different things. Half the time, a lot of people think they're talking about fibroids and then it's actually a cyst and cysts do go away on their own. So, you know, be just really reluctant to trust everybody's testimony. But honestly, I think it's hard. I think fibroids are difficult because, you know, it's kind of like, I hate to liken it to cancer because it's not, thank God, but it is, it's a tumor. And so when you have a tumor in the way, you know, the hard part for me is I am a trained surgeon. If you have a tumor in the way, you cut it out basically. And so it's kind of hard because, you know, I, even with my own battle, like, you know, when I didn't have symptoms, it was fine. I was living with my fibroids, but when I got to the point where you were, where it was like bothering me, it was like, oh my gosh, get this out of me. Now, because of my own like personal issues, I was in residency, I was in training, trying to graduate. I had to delay it for two years. And sometimes I realized how much that impacted me by like holding on to this. And there was no, you know, like I stopped eating soy, I stopped doing all those things. But by the time you have like a large like fibroid load, it's very hard to like, you know, reverse, you know, what's already been done. The main thing that can kind of like shrink them temporarily is something called Lupron, which is a medication that is, it mimics a hormone in the brain called GRN, GNRH. I'll spare trying to like articulate that over this because I will not sound it out right and I'll sound silly. But um, <laughs> basically, it basically kind of puts you into temporary menopause and that actually does shrink your fibroids. So your ovaries are functioning. And so as long as you have ovaries that are in a cycle, they're going to feed the fibroids to grow because you have estrogen half of your cycle every month. And that is definitely like feeding the fibroids to maintain, if not make them grow. So the absence of estrogen and cutting that out through this like brain hormone that kind of shuts off your ovaries and puts them to sleep for temporarily, that kind of does like make it shrink. But other than that, short of that, there aren't a lot of things that will, there's not a lot of diet changes or something you can do to just shrink your fibroids. And that's a reversible change too. Mm, okay. And so what, so you said it's not going to shrink them, but let's say, because one of the things that I, I eventually did have the surgery. And so then after you've had the surgery, would those diet changes 
be recommended to prevent more fibroids from developing? I mean, I think at the end of the day, I think it, it may, I mean, whatever makes you feel like you're doing something. So I will, I admit, I do not drink soy milk anymore. I used to be a soy milk fiend back in college and I stopped drinking soy milk. I, you know, I've made some diet changes, but you know, sometimes I kind of feel like, you know, your DNA wins. And the only thing, you know, some, you know, like I know there are some doctors who don't believe like there is a gene for blackness. Of course there isn't. However, we know how black people arrived in America. We came from West Africa. And after operating in West Africa, I was in a small town um, named Apam, Ghana, which is, you know, not too far from Cape Coast, where the big slave castle um, that like shipped most Africans from West Africa to the Americas is, I encountered such big five words and I was so, you know, I used to be so in my own like brain, like, oh my God, I have five words. And I'm saying 25 year olds, like me needed to get, you know, my amectomies or get the five words cut out because they're just that huge. And I'm seeing women who are 40 years old with their five words all the way up to like, you know, the top of their belly where their stomach is, you, you know? So wow. I think at some point it's not necessarily just, you, you know, like, oh, it's your diet because this was a fisherman's town. They, all they ate was fish. You know, like, so they didn't have soy milk, you know, so it's hard to be like, oh, yeah, if we just do these things and we're going to be all right. So, you know, like, I think at the end of the day, there is, you know, I think the main thing is, and I think this is my message to black women is to just know that, you know, you're at risk. And I think the more you know better, you do better and you prepare yourself. I think the main thing with fibroids is making the conscious decisions about your fertility and how you'll navigate fertility, knowing that you've had fibroids, you might have fibroids um your sister or whoever you know like making sure you have that conversation about what you'll do because i think the hard part in today's america is that everyone just thinks freezing your eggs is the solution to everything however when you have fibroids you know like freezing your having eggs in the freezer is not, not might not be a problem having repeat myomectomy or repeat surgery to remove fibroids that keep growing back that actually might be your issue and that's a whole different situation so you know just making sure that you make time to like even like think about it yeah, we're sitting here quiet because yeah. we're sitting here thinking about it. Yeah. Like, we're like, oh, damn. I just, I'm taking it all in and I have a few random questions and this is not a topic I'm very well versed on. So we are, I'm definitely learning a lot today already, Dr. Joy. Um, so you're saying that a woman, a woman that has fibroids, she can get pregnant. Yeah. I mean, so there are studies that show that basically around four centimeters is sometimes when fertility is impacted. However, you know, also this is just from, you know, my own experience with, you know, based when I was in residency and I went to Howard for medical school, I've worked with mostly like African-American and West African women for as patients. So I've seen plenty of women come in and deliver with huge fibroids. You know, it's not that it, it's not everybody that'll impact, but it does have some impact on fertility once it's larger. So once you have one, of, like if you have like maybe like a one, three centimeter fibroid, I'm not thinking like you need to have surgery in, in preparation to get pregnant. However, if you have like 20 fibroids in your uterus saying gang gang like that's something you might like have to address oh my goodness <laughs> gang gang <laughs> Girl, i had a gang man i called and felicia was the leader let me tell you <laughs> i love it i love it i mean sometimes you got it what they say laugh and keep from to, to keep, keep from, from crying right, right? <laughs> i had it, like when i had my surgery i literally um so my biggest fiber was pretty huge and i called her felicia just because I could always feel her. And so I used to, like, right before my surgery, I had a bi Felicia party. Like, where I, I had my friends <laughs> Yeah, like, I feel like, you know, one of my friends said, you have to celebrate every moment in your life. Like, 
you know, because especially like I'm single, you know, like I haven't had a baby shower. I haven't had a bridal shower. I haven't had a wedding, but it was a way to celebrate myself and this journey that I had going through. And I'm so glad I did it because, you know, if, if I make it, everybody saw me one last time. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So you had a bye Felicia party in preparation for your five voice. Yes, and I had my surgeon there so everybody could look her in the eye and say, take care of my friend. <laughs> I love it. That is so amazing. What a way to just turn the situation around and just switch up the energy. You know what I mean? Because it could be a very depressing time, but sort of seeing the light and the the humor, you know, in that in that moment. Yeah. yeah. So there were a couple of things that you mentioned that I I want to get back to. So one of the things that you mentioned is that sometimes people in their like Facebook posts have talked about their fibroids shrinking when the when in actuality they didn't have fibroids they had cysts and so for me what that brings up is this this notion that one that there are times when we may be misdiagnosed and two the controversy around black women advocating for ourselves with medical professionals and the medical professionals not listening to us. So, I mean, I guess like with the whole, like, you know, I guess ghosting a fibroid, shall we say, I always why I know this is because people come into me and say, I have fibroids, like, you know, I need them out. And so then I do an ultrasound and there's nothing there. And so then like, sometimes you ask more questions and it seems like, yeah, they were saying like, it was this size and it was like mostly fluid. And it's like, actually that was probably a cyst. It's no longer there. It's resolved. So I think like, it's just that it's really hard because, you know, I, you know, I talk to patients all the time. I think the problem is that patients don't necessarily know their diagnoses. And that's also, I think, on the physician to make sure they actually properly counsel people about what their diagnoses are so that they can keep inventory. And so that because, you know, like if you have a huge cyst, sometimes that can twist and you can be in an emergency surgery, you know, because you're in so much pain and they have to save your ovary, et cetera. So I think it's hard, you know, when we lump things in to like, you know, oh, you have like some kind of reproductive issue and like people don't know. So I just encourage everyone to make sure they have like a name, like write it down for me or can you print something out for me so I know what that is? Because I think that's the first part of advocating for yourself is knowing your diagnoses. I think it's really hard to, you know, it's very hard to advocate for yourself in the healthcare system just because most of it, it's not designed to protect you. I think, you know, if you look at the American, you know, look at the American government, I think the reason why we don't have, you know, you know, I'm scared to like give real opinions, but I'm going to just give it. (laughs) Uh, I think the reason why we don't have socialized medicine here is because, you know, we've had this like population of, you know, African-Americans who've been here since, you know, 1619, who could just, you know, absorb resources, even though we've put into like, you know, get back whatever we put into the system. But I think it's it's definitely a racist issue. You know, every other industrialized country has socialized medicine and we don't. And so I think the system, I just kind of like look at it as the system's not designed to protect us. And that's unfortunate because what do we need to take care of ourselves? We need a healthcare system and we live in a, and exist in America. But, you know, I think the main things you can do is A, ask advocate for yourself, but also get a second opinion. No one has to, you know, unless it's a life or death situation, you can go somewhere else and ask someone else to do something. Like I always offer my patients, sometimes if I'm not comfortable doing something, I'm like, this person would be glad to do the thing that you want to do. But on, you know, my practice of medicine, I don't like to do those things because, you know, I want to make sure I treat the whole person and I want to treat your psyche and make sure that I don't do something that you'll regret later on or, you know, these different things. And so 
you always can ask another person. And I think that's the key thing is to, to redirect sometimes because you have to shop just like you would shop for, you know, a good man or a good mm-hmm. partner, a good woman, whoever, like, you know, like you need to like shop and make sure you get resources, you know, background checks, all that different stuff. And especially in California, California is nice because you can look up the licenses of all the physicians and see if they've ever had anything done against them. Mm-hmm. So, oh. you know, like they have that on the website, you know, so it's really transparent here. So I think like you can, I just say shop, you know, like you don't have to put up with anybody's stuff if, unless it's an emergency. Right? I don't really recommend like finding out against medical advice if someone's saying I need to do something to save your life. But, you know, if it's something that's just like, you know, something you're working on or something, some medical issue you need extra advice about, go to somebody else. That's super helpful. And it kind of makes me think about just in general, like vaginal health. And I talked to a lot of women and I feel like many of us were not taught how to care for our lady parts. So if you can just offer some advice on, you know, different things that we should do and maybe shouldn't do. I know I'll just bring up this random thing, but I remember ever since I was little, my mom always used to say, don't douche. It's not good for you. It messes up the pH balance. So any pro tips around vaginal health would be super helpful. Yes, mom. Yeah. Well, I mean, so it's interesting lately on Instagram, they've been advertising me all these different like vaginal health things. And mm-hmm. I'm like your mom. Like, I think I was just trained to do nothing. The vagina is a self-cleansing organ. There is nothing to do. If there is a smell or something that's off, that means the pH is probably off and we need to investigate and figure out if it's too acidic and we need to get it back towards seven or if it's too, you know, excuse me, get it back towards like four or so, four and a half, or if it's too basic and we need to get it back down towards four and a half. So I just kind of feel like do nothing, do no harm. That's how I feel about the vagina. Now, the thing that people don't know is there are things we put in our vaginas all the time that can change the pH. Case in point, sperm. Sperm definitely does increase your pH because sperm is basic. And that's always my lesson to patients. Sperm is basic. Think about that before you put it inside of you. So, you know, <laughs> unless it's somebody you really trust to have their basic sperm inside of you. So, you know, like things like that. So, and that's how a lot of people get back to your vaginosis because it's not an STD. It's just changing your environment. And that's something that sperm can do. That's something that even water can do. So you don't really need to douche and stuff like that. That said, I don't want people to feel like, you know, don't feel bad about not being taught a lot of vaginal health because, you know, I have a um, my nonprofit, Daughters of the Diaspora. We teach uh, reproductive health and self-esteem to adolescent girls throughout the African diaspora. And I tell you, every time we do these workshops, we had to downsize that workshop to like small groups because girls just have so many questions. And a lot of it was discharge. A lot of it was like, so wait, this discharge? What about this? And I think the key thing is like knowing your normal, like know your baseline, because when it's a, a shift from baseline, then that's a reason to consult somebody. But I feel like some, so many times people are like, oh, today was different. Oh, you know, like that's it. And it's like, it needs to be a pattern. I think, you know, if you think the, you know, the woman's cycle is it's a cycle, it's a pattern. So once you get out of pattern, well, that's a reason to cult, consult somebody. But sometimes most of these things do work themselves out. And I think a lot of the problem is because we have so much anxiety around our genitalia. I think people, any sign of even like the smallest bump, people are coming in like, you know, and I think in the Kaiser system, it's pretty easy to get seen. So <laughs> people come in for like the most random things, like, oh, I have this little, and I'm like, that's nothing. Okay. That's a hair bump, girl. You know, right. It's okay. <laughs> Warm compress. Don't touch it. You know, so I think the key thing is really just knowing you're normal and just looking for is normal normalizing or is it getting worse? And so I think that's mm-hmm. kind of the thing to look out for vaginal, vulva, all that kind of health. Okay. And so then the next thing that I wanted to circle back to was about freezing your eggs. 
Like there's been a lot of talk about that recently. And I mean, even for me personally, one of the things that I've told friends recently is that that's something that I would advise my younger self to do is at like 21, 25, I would have froze my eggs. And so what is your take on egg freezing? How old are you now, though? If you don't mind me asking, am I blowing up your spot? It's all good. The listeners who have been around for a while, they know, yeah, I'm 36. <laughs> Looking fly. So I think the hard part, I'm like really like, I'm not the, like, I'm not the, like, you know, I have two close friends who are both reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialists, which are the people who do egg freezing. And they're so rah, rah, rah about egg freezing. But the thing is, I think people don't understand what egg freezing comes with. So if you had frozen your eggs at 21, you would be paying rent on that every year until you decide to have a baby so that's just like you know it's not like it's just you know it's not like you just do it and it's like oh i froze my eggs they chilling and it's like no you gotta pay the children so you would have had to have the money at 21 to be able to maintain that and maybe you were at that point in time where you can a pay for the like you know five to ten thousand dollars to actually like do the process and then b actually pay the rent every month which is like five hundred dollars to probably like a thousand or so um, to maintain that every year and keep them in the freezer and trust and believe if you don't pay, it's just like storage, you know, that stuff goes, you saw all they did to Malcolm X's stuff when they didn't pay that bill. So they will throw out your precious eggs. So I think the hard part is like, you know, it's hard for me. I'm not a big advocate of telling 21 year olds to be, you know, anxious about their fertility. I think the key things are to really, you know, map out your life and map out your goals and kind of say like, you know, do like, um, I forget what they're called. Like, you know, like it's kind of like an algorithm. If I don't get married by this time, or if I don't find a partner to have, you know, a baby with by this time, then I'll do this at this age and blah, blah, blah. Because then you might lead to like, okay, at this age, I would freeze my eggs because, you know, like they allow people to do egg donation at a lot of places up to like 32, 33. So it's not that, you know, your quality isn't, your quality of egg doesn't really go down until 35. So um, it's kind of hard to be like, oh, definitely freeze your eggs as soon as you have some fresh ones, you know? The other part of the egg freezing thing is, you know, you have to consult what the live birth rate is of freezing your eggs. So the way I always, I mean, and this might be a little bit old data because this is what when I was trained two years ago, and supposedly there are some technologies that are a little bit better, but they used to quote that every egg has a three to 5% chance of actually becoming a whole human being, like a whole being actually born out of your womb and into this world. And so that might seem like, oh, whatever, three to five percent, but that actually is like very little. And so you like they would recommend that you freeze like about 20 eggs to kind of get that to like, you know, the best chance of you like actually having a baby from this collection. That's one part. So just to give you a comparison, you know, if you look at embryos and this is what struck me in residency because I was like, okay, so sperm matters, because if you freeze an embryo, which is IVF, where they take out your egg, then they take one little sperm. They allow it to fertilize that egg and grow for about five days. Then they flash freeze it then. And they can tell the quality of that embryo, like tell you if it's genetically normal. You get more information and then they can freeze it. And that kind of gives you, you know, that has a 40% chance of actually turning into a whole human being. So if you have like 10 embryos, you're probably like in there in terms of like, you know, actually making, you know, a full on baby. And so I think, Freezing your eggs, you know, 
you know, I have friends who have had to do multiple cycles to try and get to that lucky number 15 to 20, basically. So it's not that it's, you know, I think we, you know, I think it's great if you like work at Google or Facebook, all these places that just pay for it. And then maybe you don't have to pay the cost or, you know, it's kind of like no sweat off your back. But I think it's something you really have to think about. Am I willing to invest money definitely and b what am i freezing am i just freezing eggs am i finding a sperm donor to actually like freeze with the eggs and you know all these different things and even still like if you freeze embryos with a partner who is or is not your partner you know like they can always custody is a huge issue when it comes to embryos custody goes like usually you sign paperwork that both of you have to decide to turn this into a baby in order to like actually have a baby so that means if you guys break up this other person has power over what you do with your embryos. And those might be all you have left. So I think it's kind of like, it's just a really, really complicated thing. And so I think everyone just says like freezing your eggs as if it's just like, you know, like, let me go to Hawaii next month. It's not that simple. It's much cheaper to go to Hawaii, A. Eh? Probably better for your your mental health. But, you know, I think it's just like, something <laughs> just to really like, again, like look within, dig deep and try and figure out what do I really want? Do I want, you know, and the thing is, a lot of times people don't use those eggs. So you might meet a partner. Everyone's going to try and get pregnant spontaneously because that's more money if you have to unfreeze them and actually get them fertilized. So you're going to, you know, it's good to have them like just in the back of your mind, just in case. But then let's say you have your family. What do you do? Are you going to stop paying rent on them and then get rid of them? Do you save them for your granddaughter, for your, for your daughter? Like, what do you do? You know? So that's just something to think about too, is that like, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily use them. And there's an article in the New York times recently about a woman who like, you know, froze her eggs, then she unfroze them and they didn't, none of them turned into a baby. And that was really hard for her because nobody talks about that part. So I just feel like mm-hmm. it's just keep all your information. You know, like, I think it's just really important to, nothing is foolproof. I think the only thing that's foolproof is actually having a baby that's there next to you and saying like, okay, I had a baby, you know? So I think, you know, I think we just have to get beyond the whole, like, I think it's just so sexy right now to say, you know, freezing my eggs. And I think people don't realize the roots of it. The roots of egg freezing came from cancer patients who were literally going through chemo and were literally going to like, you know, they won't be able to like, they're going to lose all their eggs. So of course you would do this if someone's definitely like, you know, this is all they have. It's that desperate of a situation. But I think, again, it's important just to kind of like, what am I doing this for? Will I need to use this? Will I not? And just kind of really like, you know, think about it. Don't just like feel like you just have to do it because everybody's doing it. Because even like this new app, I hate to give like, you know, credence to something, but Modern Facility, this app that I keep getting advertised on Instagram, like know your numbers. Like, I think it's hard because we keep translating data that come from infertility and infertility means not to get pregnant with one partner for one year after having sex strategically, basically. And so if technically, if you're, if you're a woman by yourself and you haven't tried to get pregnant, you're not infertile. You know what I mean? You just don't know about your fertility and those numbers don't necessarily correlate with, I mean, you get those numbers down and you feel like, Oh, great. I got my numbers. They look good. That doesn't necessarily correlate with if you're going to, if you'll get pregnant in the next year, that just says, if you were trying, you know, like if you were trying to get pregnant in the last year with somebody, they can use certain medications to stimulate you easily. But it's not necessarily like, you know, it doesn't, it sh- you shouldn't make you just like feel like, oh, my fertility is fine. Or if you have devastating numbers, does that mean all of a sudden that you're, you're infertile? We don't know. So it's just kind of like, I think tests that, you know, you have to be really careful about. I think in medicine, there's so much information out there. And I think what my, my, 
understanding of medicine is that you should, why are you testing for something? That's always a question. What are you going to do with this information? Because you can get information, but if you don't know what you're going to do with it, if it's going to cause anxiety and you're not going to be ready to act on it, then why are you even getting that information? And that has been my TED talk. Sorry, that was long. <laughs> and welcome to my TED talk. I love it. That was a lot to consider. That's really, really like mind blowing. I never did the research, so I never do all this, but yeah, I'm sitting here and I'm like, what I really like is what you started off saying about that decision-making tree of like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm 21, I'm 25, and I'm thinking about I w- maybe I want a family. I like what you said about thinking about like the what ifs, like what if I get to 25 and I don't, I, I don't have a partner, a suitable partner? What if I get to 25 and I find out that... I have fibroids or I have PCOS or I have lots of cysts on my ovaries. I like that idea of really fleshing out the what ifs so that you can be prepared down the line. Because no one's telling us to do it. They just say like, you know, I think it's like, I think this is the problem. We spend so much time as women fantasizing about a marriage, fantasizing, not even a marriage, let me stop, a wedding, what colors we're going to wear, how many kids we're going to have. And we plan for careers. We plan for like, this is, I'm going to this college. I'm going to those things. And I'm like, and I used to tell myself, I'm getting married at 30. Now, I don't know how I thought I was going to get married at 30 with no strategy. But, you know, I was like, I don't need a strategy for love. I just need a strategy, you know, for getting my career, all these different things. And I feel like we have not been good about like, you know, life coaching ourselves, I should, I should say, outside of like in our actual personal lives. And like, what are my personal goals? What, are, you know, how do I achieve these different things? And I think part of me being 35 and having already had a surgery to pre- preserve my fertility, which is a myomectomy, you know, or removing your fibers from your uterus, it made me think. I had never thought about any of these things until it was like, wait, I just had surgery to remove fibroids and I kept my uterus so that I could have a baby. And it's like, wait, where is this baby? When am I going to have this baby? Mm-hmm. And so I think it totally like, you know, reset the way I looked at the world because I definitely was a different person. My friend will tell you, she was like, oh, before you had surgery, you were like, oh, if anything happens, I'll just adopt a baby if I never. But after I like had surgery, I feel like I sacrificed myself for some future child that I don't know. And I was like, oh no, like I got to have a baby now. And so it's just, it, you know, like it's just important that we make plans because I think otherwise life will plan and go on without you. And, you know, that's why I say I'm not like opposed to freezing your eggs. I think it's just, you have to figure out what is your strategy and why are you doing it? I think don't do it just because everybody says do it. Um, and that's where I know a lot of women now who like, you know, once they get married and have a partner, they have problems like, you know, conceiving and they're like, oh, I should have froze my eggs. And I'm like, sis, it's your man's sperm count. That was not going to protect you from this. You know what I mean? So like, you know, th- there's so many things that, you know, you have to consider like, you know, in terms of instead of just saying like, oh, I should have just froze my eggs and that would have cured everything. It's not going to cure anything. It's an option. This is super helpful, Dr. Joy. And I have to say, I I love when we have just amazing Black women come on our show. I feel like the Black girl magic is just exuding from your mic. I feel like my melanin my melanin is being activated. I just feel super. I'm just on one right now. I'm on yes. And then you're so accomplished. Like, what even interested you in these topics? You know, you, you studied uh, sexually transmitted infections and... You said that you're a, what was it, a surgeon? I'm like, what? This Black woman is amazing. What what made you dive into this? So as I said, I'm a Philly girl. Um, I, when I was in high school, I went to Girls High, which is like one of the oldest public um, Mm -hmm. all-girls schools that are remaining. And 
Honestly, I think going to that school was majority black and seeing so many of my like peers like, you know, have teenage pregnancies, have all like I remember I used to run to this STD clinic across the street at Einstein and be like, oh, girl, we got to get tested. And it just made me like, I want to be a doctor for these girls. Like, I want to be their doctor who's going to break it down, who's going to have the information, because I just felt like there was so much curiosity and not a lot of answers. And we like underestimate how much girls talk, how much like, you know, we just get a lot of our information from like really bad sources, like our friends. And so for me, I'm always just trying to like, anytime I have a patient, I'm trying to inject them with information because I know if I tell a woman something, I'm telling her whole community because women talk. So I think those were the things that experience really made me like, I want to be an OBGYN, I want to be an urban adolescent OBGYN. And so I'm working, I'm on the urban part. I haven't done the adolescent part so much, but um, I think that was really what motivated me. And when I was in high school, I was, you know, I loved my high school. So, I used to, when I was in college, I used to go back to um, my high school and visited it. And they had done a surveillance study in the city of Philadelphia where they tested all the high school students for SCDs. And I was fascinated with the data. They were getting like STDs, like chlamydia, which is very common between women ages 15 to 24. They were getting it down to a zip code. So there was some brother in that zip code, a university city, running around the whole neighborhood, just infecting everybody with chlamydia. Because that whole like zip code was just lit up with chlamydia. And I was like, well, what is this? Like, what is, you know, what is this STD thing? And that's what made me like, I was so excited to study STDs and HIV because, you know, the, th- the difference between like pregnancy and STDs is that anybody can get pregnant if you have sperm and egg close to each other. But STDs are all about your network. And so a lot of what we teach at DOD or Daughters of the Diaspora is that your network determines your net worth. And I think so often, you know, when you're growing up in school, they tell you like the dude who's the fly one who's been with everybody that's who you're trying to get with. But that's the dude who's exposed to everybody's STDs up in here whether it be HPV, human papillomavirus, which causes cervical cancer or herpes, those you can get without condoms or excuse me, with condoms, with or without condoms. So, you know, like you're exposing yourself to stuff you don't even know about. So watch your network because you don't want to be in the network or in the circle of the dude who's walking around giving everybody, you know, future abnormal pap smears. So I think like, you know, those are the kind of things that kind of got me interested in. Like it was my community. And I think a lot of my experiences were born out of that initial community. And that's probably why I moved to Oakland because I was looking for something similar, but not home, basically. Yeah, that is so inspiring. And I already have a bunch of questions about STIs and STDs. So we're going to have to have you back, Dr. Joyce. You could dive into that topic and educate our women. Because like you said, when you tell a woman something, especially a Black woman, you already know her community is, is, we're going to know, it's going to be in the group chat. It's going to be the next girls night. You know what I mean? The next turn up, the next kickback, whatever it is. And so with that being said, we would love to move on and dive into our next session. So Dr. Joy, because we recognize and appreciate and celebrate the multifaceted woman, and we believe that it's okay to be classy and ratchet, and you can still be elegant and dance to strip club music, we want to invite you to the OU Clatchet segment. So Dr. Joy, do you take on the challenge? Yes, ma'am. Let's do this. Hey, all right, all right. So our first question is, what's the most spontaneous thing you've ever done? Oh I'm a super spontaneous person, so I'm like, I just got to figure out what's going to impress y'all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh my gosh, sorry, y'all. Like, I'm like, gosh, they're giving these questions. I'm like, uh, I got a lot to choose from. Um, <laughs> Love it. Yeah. 
I'm the type of chick who would just like hop on a flight. And so like my godchildren live in Kenya and I visit them every, you know, usually every year. And as I was on my way to Kenya, like my friend texts me who lives in Ethiopia and she's like, girl, I'm going to Zanzibar, like come to Zanzibar. And I had told my mom, like, I'm going to East Africa, but I'm not doing Zanzibar. This is not a chill trip for me. I need to spend time with my godchildren. So my friend's like, yo, like you got to come to, you got to come to Zanzibar. And I'm like, ah, whatever, girl. Like 30 minutes later, I just booked a ticket and was like, okay, I'm gonna go to Kenya to Zanzibar and just do it. And so I think that's like probably the most fantastic. Like, is my friends still talk about that to this day? Cause it was in the group chat that she like kind of set me up. So it was like, oh, I gotta do this. <laughs> I love it. Yes, that is pretty so spontaneous. I like, definitely like, I think travel, I'm really spontaneous when it comes to travel. I'll just be like, I wanna go here and like, let me just do it. Like, last week I just drove to LA. Like, I need a new change of scenery. And so I think when it comes to travel, I'll be very spontaneous. I love it. I love it. And what I love about that is that you, your friends know you well enough to know that if they're going to challenge you on that, they got to put it in the group chat. Because you're not going to back down. That you won't go to, that you won't go to Atlanta this weekend, just randomly. Like, <laughs> I, I know, I know you ain't going to do it. I always invite from those friends. They're like, so girl, you don't need to do that. They're like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of hanging out with your girls, what do you do for fun? Uh, what do I do for fun? Um, it's so weird because I feel like living in Oakland has totally like <laughs> changed. I don't like clubbing anymore since living out here because I feel like the clubs are kind of weak. <laughs> yeah, I said it. Um, right. I mean, I honestly, I would say my favorite thing to do now since I moved out here, became an adult, grown up, is actually having house parties. Like I love having like dinner parties. Like people are just like, eat and as long as the food is right and the drink is right people have a good time and I'm always amazed with how simple it can be um so I really would say like honestly I like hosting I feel like living out here in Oakland and seeing how many gentrified spaces there are there aren't a lot of like all black spaces and being from Philadelphia I'm used to that it's a very segregated city so I'm used to like you know the whole city feeling like home but here I kind of feel like you know as soon as I leave my door you know my neighbors look at me like why you live here how can you afford this are you section eight blah 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 and you know, so I leave my door, it's like, uh, you know, I feel like the world hits me. And I feel like in my home, when I invite my friends to my home and like, we just have a good old time, I just feel like that's like, that's been like the warmest moments for me, like just hosting my friends over here. So that's what I do for fun now, I guess. That actually sounds so amazing, especially as an adult, you know, you're in a safe space. You don't got to worry about no crazies, you know, shooting up the spot. You like in your own space. I love that. Okay. And the next question is, what's your biggest pet peeve? Oh, um, ugh, sorry. <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> it's, I'm trying not to sound too, like, bougie, though. Hold on a second. Hold on. No judgment, no judgment. <laughs> I'm sorry, bougie, though, but, like, um, I really just don't, like, my pet peeve is actually when people text and have, like, really, like, a lot of spelling errors. Or, like, when you're trying to clap back in the shade room and you got, like, you know, uh, uh, your is spelled wrong. Yeah, like there, there's like all that kind of stuff. I'm just kind of like, don't you know how to like, you know, reread this and before edit it? You know, like you're so like hyped to get something out that you're not even completing a thought. So for me, it's just like, that's like my pet peeve. Like spell correctly, use your, use the proper word for whatever word. And, you know, just know, like, you know, like just take the time to like read it. I feel like everything, especially with these tweets, people don't realize tweets, you know, it's different. I think the spoken word is different than like the written word. When you read something that lasts forever, like look at, you know, the Kevin Hart situation. That's why that thing came up and down because you wrote that down. 
that is cemented in time. And so I think it's important just to think about what you write down and like how you write it and how you say it. So that's my big pet peeve. I feel like in this, this day and age, everyone's trying to get out their 140 characters, but not really giving thought and time into it. Yes. I am with you on that. Like, oh, that makes my soul cringe. Oh, oh. yes. yes. <laughs> things on the flip side, things that really make me happy are a good caption. Oh my gosh. If you caption things for the God, oh. Oh, I'm with you. I'm yes. with you. Them captions where you're like, damn, I wish I would have thought of that. Right? Like, dang. <laughs> exactly. I even had like, one yesterday that was like, ah, like, capture, capture. Like, I just shared to like, read the caption. Like, you know, I love it when it's just like, and it ain't even got to go with the picture. It's just like, let me have a word for you, sis. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm with it. I'm with it. So the next question, what's the most cringeworthy outfit you've ever worn? Ooh. Now you said you're bougie, so that means that you probably have few cringeworthy outfits. Like that's what I'm saying. Like cringeworthy as a, I'm just like I, I don't know. I don't play with my clothes. I'm from Philly. Like girl, we feel we feel people used to dress good. And I remember my like cousin. She lived in West Philly. West Philly girls really didn't play. You had to really come correct. Um, I don't know. Like that's like. Cause to me, I am. I take a lot of risks, and I'll wear everything from like cheap to the high end. Like I'm very like quote unquote high low from Real Housewives of Atlanta. Um, I don't really have like, I don't know, cringeworthy. Like my mama would cringe at half the stuff I wear because I'd be having all my breasts out and stuff. But um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that works. Yeah, I feel like my, I've been, I will say since I turned 35, I've been having this moment where it's like, oh, titties out in like all, all my dresses. So that's, yes. I feel like I'm a cringe. I remember it was, it was, I have a picture of my like screen of my phone. I'm like, what's that? I said, oh, you don't need to see this. Like, uh, <laughs> like, close your eyes, close your eyes. I feel like that's like the, my main trend right now. It's like five days where my breasts are out and I ain't got no car to be like, you know, like implant so they still sit up but I'm like I, that's just like my new thing because I turned 35 is being daring in that way but I think that just makes my mama cringe because you know she used to be a passive wife so I don't know Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> embracing your body and embracing and embracing who you are I love it hell yeah all right now Dr. Joy what is your biggest guilty pleasure um watching Ratchet TV oh my gosh I kind of like, you know, I don't do the love and hip hop. I don't do the basketball wise. It's a little too much for me because I just kind of feel like it was cute when it started, but now it's just mm-hmm. like, you can't do 20 seasons of this. Yeah. But I still love Real Housewives of Atlanta. I still love Married to Medicine. I love those shows because these are women who have like some level of expertise or some level of a career, some level, you know, like you're doing something. I feel like the hard part for me with a lot of the other shows is like, you know, it's hard for me to watch, you know, somebody just being someone's girlfriend and like getting no variety from that. But I feel like having being someone in your own right and just like, whether it be like I sell weaves to, you know, like being a model and being excellent at that. You know, I think that's what I love about those shows is just seeing like these black women living their best lives. And like, for me, like someone like I love is like Quad on Married to Medicine. She was a, you know, someone's wife and she like was like, oh no, I'm not going to just be your wife. I'm also going to be these things. And like they ended up getting divorced and good thing she's like, cultivated herself because she came out of the marriage and still has herself so yes. I think these shows give me so much like inspiration because it's just so great to see so many different black women from different walks of life like just ruling it on tv like and I just love it I, I don't know it's just that's like you know I just love like talking like my mom will call me to talk real housewives of Potomac like it's like it becomes like you know your girlfriends you're talking about so I don't know reality tv really is like 
I don't tell people a lot how much I watch it, but I watch it a lot. <laughs> well, now we know. Now we know, because I don't know this last question. I have to say, I keep it current with my patients because I like, I am really big on putting in pop culture references during, you know, like I always tell people like it's cuffing season, time to get contraception. Like, I, and it works. You, know, you got to move people where they are. You know, you can't say like, right. are you interested in birth control? No, it's like, it's cuffing season, girl. It's time. What's exactly, your point? Exactly. You already know what it is. So get that, get that contraceptive. <laughs> It's about to get cold. I got to really go in in the office. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So how can just anyone who, because at this point now, like there's women from around the world who will be listening to this. How can they stay in touch with you? So I am on Instagram. I'm not really a Facebook person or I kind of like have shied away from Facebook. And I'm not really a Twitter person, but I am on Instagram at T-H-E-D-R-J-O-Y at the Dr. Joy. Um, and I would say medically, however, I, am, I have a startup named Culture Care where we are connecting Black women with physicians online. And basically, you could do a telemedicine encounter um, all online and just pay cash. It doesn't matter what your insurance is. It just matters what state you're in. So we're starting in California, starting in the next month. And um, if you're not in California, you're interested in potentially being my patient one day, please go to our website, ourculturalcare.com and just hit the get started so we can, you know, put in your name and your state and we'll contact you when we're in your state. So, yeah. All right. And if for someone who is in the Bay Area and wants to be your patient, how can they find you? I am a physician at Highland Hospital. But what that means is that I see patients who have Medi-Cal and like Alameda Alliance and all that. So if you are one of those people and you are on um, like Medi-Cal, like I can definitely see you at Highland Hospital. Just call and say you want to see Dr. Cooper. Um, I think it's 510-437-8500. Um, however, it's kind of hard to see people if you if you don't have that insurance and you want to see me, it's going to be culturecare.com because um, it doesn't matter what insurance you are on that. Whereas like I definitely have committed my main career to helping underserved populations. Um, so um, if you got good insurance, sorry, you got to hit the, the cash. But it's the simple part of a copay. So don't be shy. Okay. Dr. Joy, you're so awesome. Thank I you know. so much for joining us today. This was so amazing. I think it's so important to have a woman like you with your experience and even like the cultural references, just your swag yeah. being in this space and showing other young girls that I can still be fly and be on fleek and still, you know, be a doctor and serve my community. I mean, I'm just, I'm just, I'm done. Drops mic. You're amazing. Well, thank, you thank, get you. Me. thank you. You get me. Honestly, yeah. that's again, like I think that's what I was like. I think my biggest identity beyond being a black woman is being a Philly girl. I honestly like the only reason why I wanted to go to Harvard is because I saw all the people who were going to like MIT and Yale from my, my high school. And they were all like, you know, super nerdy or they were like white. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. I got to be a black girl like who's like still cool with everybody who goes to Harvard. It's like, yeah, you can do it too, girl. And so I'm just so glad that you get my like thesis from like when I was 16 years old. That's literally what I thought when I was 16. It's like, I got to be myself, but also still be able to, to achieve these things so that, you know, girls like me know that this is achievable. There we go. I love it. Oh, thank you so thank much, you. Dr. Joy. No, thank you, ladies. This has been great. Thanks for joining us today in Her Space. Please note that our show may contain conversations about self-help, advice, self-empowerment, and mental health, but it is by no means meant to be a substitute for an ongoing formal relationship with a trained mental health provider. 
If you or someone you know is in need of mental health care, please visit the Therapy for Black Girls directory, Psychology Today, or contact your insurance provider. If you liked what you heard and want to keep the conversation going, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at HerSpacePodcast, or check out our website at HerSpacePodcast.com. And before we meet again, repeat after me. I know that everything is working out for my good, even when things don't go as planned. We'll see you next week, lady.